One of the activities that always happens when you get a new group of people together is like this icebreaker type thing. So sometimes you, you do an activity, sometimes you ask a certain question to help people get to know each other. So shameless plug and shout out is we had our first student ministry community group this past Thursday. And so can we clap for that? Like that's so like that's so cool. So yeah, I mean, so Generation Church officially has a student ministry. We're so pumped for that. So it happens every Thursday on Zoom presently. And one of the cool things is is just how God is working and seeing our vision fulfilled for generations to come. And so one of the things that when you get a new group of people together and you ask certain questions is those icebreaker type questions. And so here's one of those questions that I always use when I was a student uh, minister in student ministry to try to break the ice and, and spar just friendly debate. Um, here's the question. Is soup cereal? Wait, I asked that backwards. Man, I am I, I, I butchered it, man. Uh, the big the big moment, and I, I just butchered it. See, that's that's why I'm not in student ministry anymore. That's why I'm a lead pa not pastor. No, I'm just kidding. I, all the love to student. So, is cereal soup? So, put it on the poll. Ask the question. Drop it in your gen card. Send me a text. Is cereal soup? So, we ask these questions, and maybe you've already got your opinion, your, your debate, your, and you're thinking, okay, oh, Kyle, I got an answer for you right now. Even if you're watching online, answer it in the comments, is cereal soup. We, we, we do these things because it, it gives us a laugh. It, it eases tension. It helps some of us let our guards down. It, 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 whether we come with different hopes, expectations, fears, you know, some of that level of just even rejection of when we get to know a group of people. You know, how will they feel about me and my story and my background? And so, so, so we do all these things to try to help people understand where each other are coming from. But in our story today, Jesus doesn't avoid the tension. He meets the pain and hope, the expectations, the fears right on. He doesn't shy away from it. He, he goes into the heart of of the matter. And so we find ourselves in Mark chapter 6 verses 30 through 52. And as we're going through Mark together, we're, we're trying to listen to what Jesus says and respond to him. So here's the setting of the story. Right before this passage, John the Baptist was beheaded. We learn that, that John is dead, which means there was thousands of people following John with the hopes of him being this messianic figure or pointing to the one that was going to overthrow Rome. So word has begun to spread. There's this murmuring, there's this fervor, there's this, there's this ferocity that, that is just coming out of people saying, we want to overthrow Rome, we want things to get back to the way they're supposed to be. So there's optimism, there's this hope. There's this fear because that people want this to be true, but the person they were looking to and John is dead. He has been beheaded. And so you have thousands of people with this fear, this optimism, this hope, this desire now looking for a new leader. And the setting was right. That's why there's this murmuring. Because they're, they're in Galilee. They're up in northern Israel. This is, this is the spot of rebellions. This is the spot where the zealots took, took hold. This is where the Maccabean Revolution took place. 
This was the time and the place where people were finally going to get and restore what they thought should happen. And the question on the minds of thousands of people, and ultimately as we press into this story, would Jesus be the guerrilla leader to lead these people? In the midst of the murmuring, in the midst of the clamor, would Jesus meet the expectations of these people? And so what we have is this crowd is gathered because Jesus' disciples have gone out and in some ways called attention to him. And this is why this crowd has gathered. And so he says to his disciples, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. What we see in this is Jesus wants some of the solitude. He wants some of the silence for his disciples because the first prerequisite of following Jesus is always being with Jesus. The first prerequisite of following Jesus is always being with Jesus. The life of the disciples is not only mission for Jesus, which they had just done, and which is why there's all this clamor and murmur, but also mission with Jesus. There's this understanding the need of the disciples not to be swayed by this populist thinking. So more on this here in a moment. But Jesus means in the midst of business and the busyness that they are accountable to him alone. That's true for us as well. As we try to navigate life, as we try to figure out what it looks like to to live for Jesus, to follow Jesus, to understand what it looks like in the midst of this chaotic and crazy world, and also sometimes the world that, that is full of goodness and blessing, in the midst of our business of doing life and the busyness of life, at the end of the day, we are accountable to Jesus alone, and we are called to be with Jesus if we want to be on mission for Jesus. And so here in the midst of this, the balance between finding rest and experiencing God's power is in the direction of Jesus. And it's not in the most practical of solutions. Because see, if you've been following with us in this story for a while, the last couple weeks, and if you haven't, you can go back and watch them online. But we talked about how Jesus is rest, but Jesus also is the power source for our lives. And so in a very practical and real way, the tension of rest and power collide. You feel that tension every day in your life. Is, is that clamor when you want to get into the car and you, you, just, you, know, you shut the door and you're like, okay, I want that moment of silence. Or you get the kid distracted in another room and you're like, finally a moment of peace. But at the same time, you know in the midst of those moments of rest, in the midst of those moments of silence, that you also want God to show up powerfully. You're like, God, I, I need you to show up. I need you to do something. And so it's this tension of how do we experience God's rest and God's power. And so in the midst of this, in the midst of this desire to experience God's power and God's rest, something interrupts them. It's a group of people who are clamoring and murmuring. Jesus has been inconvenienced by a group of people. The disciples and Jesus' desire for them to be with him has been interrupted. That's not uncommon for us today is for as we go about our lives is for us to have a plan and then something have to change. Something that we set out to do and maybe it's as well-meaning as being with Jesus and maybe it's just for a moment of silence or peace and that's been interrupted. 
And what's amazing is how Jesus responds to this interruption. He's not annoyed or inconvenienced. He meets that with compassion. He looks at the crowds and his heart goes out to them. He cares for them. He looks at them, not with an annoyance or not with a grievance, but with one that says, I have concern for you. And Mark gives us this phrase that says, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. Now here's what we need to know about Mark's audience here. It's likely Roman Christians who are in the throes of persecution. And they would have not totally understood pastoral terms. So when, when Mark throws out this sheep without a shepherd, it's not pastoral in nature. It's actually militaristic. It's one that is used about militaries. So which means in Jesus' compassion, Jesus sees a whole people without direction, without purpose, and without a leader. He sees them as needing direction. He sees them as, as needing purpose. And he sees them without a leader, which, which for us, as, as we begin to engage with this text, what we see is oftentimes when what we had put our trust in for these people, maybe it was John the Baptist, sometimes gets sucked out and there's a void and we try to fill it with all kinds of different things. And in that moment of trying to fill it, Jesus steps in and he has compassion for us because he knows sometimes maybe it's been a person which means we've lost a relationship or we've got hurt and we've pain or maybe our pride has been hurt. Or maybe we, we've put all our eggs into to making money and we can't seem to find a job. And when Jesus sees these people, when he sees us, he sees us and he has compassion for us. And so Mark notes the setting and the conflict that arises based on the crowd and the time. And so in the midst of this interruption, in the midst of Jesus' plan for the disciples to go to the other side, the disciples make what appeared to be a reasonable suggestion to this dilemma. Jesus, why don't we dismiss the crowds and allow them to go get food? And rather than relieving the crisis, Jesus intensifies it. The disciples made a completely rational suggestion. People are hungry. Send them away. To go to towns go have them go get food because they're thinking wait we don't have enough money we don't have the amount of food we need time for them to go get said food and if we don't hurry people are going to get angry they're going to get hangry and we know we don't like people when they get hangry exactly we don't like being hangry ourselves so clearly we don't necessarily want to be around people that are hangry so the disciples what do they do they, they make that reasonable suggestion but Jesus intensifies it and says, yeah, that might be the practical, rational solution, but why don't you give them something to eat? The disciples are overwhelmed with the magnitude of the problem. And now that everything depends on Jesus, he recognizes the perspective of the disciples. See, the disciples complain about what they lack. Jesus focuses on what they possess. And the problem of the moment will not be resolved by something beyond them, but by something from among them. And this is not unique to just them. <clears throat> Whether Christian or not, we must entrust what we have to Jesus. When we think about what we have and what we have not, at the end of the day, 
we must begin to trust Jesus that he will provide. And that doesn't just have ethereal kind of nebulous ramifications. What Jesus chooses to do is he chooses to look at them and says, you meet the need. See, and this is what Jesus does. As he looks at what we have and takes what we have and multiplies it. The perspective is changed and challenged when we begin to go to Jesus with our problems. And what we see is that Jesus takes the loaves and the fish that they have among them. He takes it, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives. And ultimately, it multiplies. Now, the importance of these four words will be discussed when we get to the final night of Jesus' life. So stay tuned. More is coming. Kind of a to-be-continued of sorts. So, so those four words are take, bless, breaks, and gives. And, and Jesus does that again and again. I appreciate it, Charles. Thank you. And when Jesus does this, the result is that everyone ate and was satisfied. And it almost seems anticlimactic until we realize that the story isn't over. Because what Jesus is attempting to communicate, that help is neither non-existent nor distant. In fact, Jesus ministers to the needs of others through the disciples. It is from them that he receives the initial offering of bread and fish, and they are instructed to settle the crowd into groups. It is them that distribute the bread and the fish to the crowd. A moment of need because of Jesus' compassion turns into a moment of abundance. And that's the beauty of how Jesus works. Is he, doesn't, he doesn't rely on something distant and abstract. What he does is he looks at a group of people and says, if you begin to understand who I am and who you are in relation to me and what you actually have, he takes us from scarcity thinking to recognizing abundance and that he is a God of abundance and so we go from 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 what we don't have to what we do have and we start to go from scarcity to satisfaction because a whole group of people were eat eat and were satisfied and naturally we begin to think so would Jesus be the guerrilla leader to lead the people and rather than give in to their demands, Jesus will not march to the populace and drumbeat. He knows the effect and influence of faulty depictions of grandeur on his disciples. And so what he says is he says, it is from my provision that takes scarcity to satisfaction. It's from my presence that takes something and turns it into abundance. And I'm going to do it not through something abstract or nebulous, but through you. That's what God likes to do, is he likes to use a group of everyday people who come together simply with what they have and bring it together and say, Jesus, we don't have much, and we know there's a lot of needs out in the world. We know there's this murmuring. We know there's this clamoring. We know there's this desire for more, and at the end of the day, we're going to turn it over to you. And Jesus is not, does not let his disciples and will not let us get dissuaded by the murmur and the clamor of the crowd because he turns scarcity into satisfaction. 
Because could you imagine the people? We don't have much. We are hungry. Let's go. We've got thousands of people. Let's go conquer a town. Let's go kick out Rome. Let's go take for ourselves. And Jesus says, no, do not go take for yourselves. I will ultimately provide for you. Jesus turns something into abundance. And then Jesus returns to his original plan, knowing that the clamor and the murmur is still there. And asks his disciples to, to go to the other side, like to, to return some time for him with God, and so that he can spend some time also with them inevitably. So having dismissed the crowd, Jesus retreats to the hills to pray. And what's so unique about this moment is whenever we see Jesus pray, we know it's before big decisions. We know it's at moments when the people want to make him their king, their leader, by force, by force in a way that mimics their perspective, rather than a perspective that Jesus sees. So, so he returns to pray into a lonely place. And there as he is spending time with God to, to rest and recharge in his humanity, he looks out and he sees his disciples removed from him and failing to understand the mission. It's, we, we learn at the last couple verses that it says they didn't understand about the loaves. They didn't understand why Jesus had done what he did. And so as Jesus is praying, you can see just how he is reaffirmed in this prayer. Just a calling to express his divine sonship as a servant rather than as a freedom fighter against Rome. And so in this moment, you see how this is expressed by Jesus revealing himself to his disciples. So there on the boat, the disciples are straining with oars and with what has just happened. They are being tormented because everything that would seem rational and right has been challenged. In a matter of weeks or months, they've already forgotten their lesson. They were just on the lake and in a giant storm was quieted and said to be still by Jesus. And yet they're out there straining, racking their, their brain and their mind to try to figure out what just happened. Who is this Jesus? And Jesus looks on the disciples with the same compassion at which he looked on the crowds. And in their misunderstanding, Jesus aims to show up by walking on water. Jesus comes to deliver to his people in need. And the deliverance becomes a self-revelation. And Mark gives us this picture through his use of he intended to pass them by. Because throughout the Old Testament, no one could look directly at the face of God. Therefore, God would pass by people in order to show himself, lest people not be consumed by his holy fire. The disciples are encountering the mysterious God, visible and palpable as it had not been and could not have been to former generations. They're seeing God show up and show them what it looks like to be human. What it looks like in the midst of inconvenience, and in the moment of scarcity, and the moment of, of clamor and murmur to go take control by force, how Jesus would have us act. And Jesus shows up to his disciples, reveals to them who he is, actually in a place that's very familiar. But it's in a place of familiarity where they experience Jesus in a new way. 
It's in a place where their defenses are down, where they're straining and contemplating that Jesus reveals himself to them. Because see, it's only when Jesus joins the disciples in the boat does the storm abate. Being with Jesus is not simply theoretical truth. It has practical and existential consequences. For the disciples, it was safety and peace. See, see, following Jesus, understanding who he is and what he is like, is not something that we just, we believe and we leave as a distant truth, but it begins to actually change where we live. It, it changes our circumstances. And in this moment, Jesus provides the safety and peace. It's his presence. And that's why we started off by saying we have to be with him. Because if separation from Jesus brings the disciples into distress, Jesus' presence with them overcomes the storms in their lives. They had forgotten the lesson that they learned, that Jesus had promised that they would make it to the other side. And instead, they're caught up with things of the past. They're, they're, they're caught up with burdens of things they don't understand. And in their misunderstanding, in the midst of a dis- difficult situation, Jesus has compassion and actually fulfills his promise by revealing himself to them. And the peace that they experienced on the lake is wanted to experience in their country, and they are astounded and their hearts are hardened. They are caught up in the past, and they miss the promise. They missed his presence. And throughout the story, we get to experience the quandary that is faith. Faith is a gift that must be received. But faith is not something that, must, that happens automatically or evolves inevitably. Just because you, you receive the gift of faith, just because cause, cause you understand who Jesus is in a theoretical sense, doesn't mean that faith is expressed in the practical sense. It's a decision when encountering Jesus. And in the Gospel of Mark, it is more often than not a decision that must be made in the face of struggle and trepidation. When the opportunity to practice faith is given, you must then act on it. You must act on the promise that you will make it to the other side. You will act on the promise that Jesus will provide. See, your followership of Jesus is more endangered by lack of faith and hardness of heart than by external circumstances. See, it's precisely in the midst of difficulties when we truly find out what we actually believe about Jesus. It's in the storms, the adversities, and the defeat that human self-sufficiency is revealed for what it is, human insufficiency. See, when we try to live life by ourselves and our own strength, we, again, will settle for practical rational solutions that come from a limited perspective. But when we begin to understand and be with Jesus, we begin to see a different perspective that results in compassion and dependence. It's when the defense of human pride is breached that people sometimes see God's presence among them, even if at first it appears in troubling and perhaps terrifying ways. The disciples were astounded. They were amazed. And in their amazement of what Jesus could do, they settled for what they could see and their hearts were hardened. And what's amazing and probably most surprising, Jesus had just fed thousands of people. Jesus just calmed another storm while they were straining at the oars. 
And those closest to Jesus reflected the same sentiments as Jesus' opponents. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't choose to act on what they knew to be true about Jesus. And church, we're in danger of some of the same things. That if we don't choose to continue to act on faith in the midst of different circumstances and situations, if we don't continue to trust for His provision, our hearts may be hardened. And we may ultimately not understand who Jesus is. But Jesus understands. He does not critique us or condemn us. He has compassion on us. But in both instances, what do we see from the disciples, from others? We see fatigue. I can't think of a much better word than how many of you might be feeling today or just with our cultural moment or just with life. Fatigue. Feeling tired. Maybe it's emotionally and mentally exhaustion. Maybe it's physical exhaustion. The disciples had experienced both. They're feeling fatigued because they're starting to change their perspective from being on Jesus to starting to ask the question, what about me? They're starting to think about scarcity instead of abundance. They're starting to think about panic instead of promises. We've got to ask, what do we do with this? When we start to ask that same question in the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of today's world, when we ask the question selfishly and sometimes honestly, what about me? Where are you, God? Will you rescue me? What do we do with this? We see in Jesus two words. The first is compassion. We begin to have concern for others. In the midst of the inconveniences and the interruptions, we have compassion. The temptation is when we ask, what about me, is to begin to think cynically, to begin to complain about others, to, to look at and say, oh, surely they're in it for them, so I've got to get mine. What about me? But we've got to recognize that not everyone has the benefits of curling up in their safe house or having food, and so we've got to understand that we need to have concern for others because ultimately it helps our perspective go back to Jesus and on His promises rather than our present circumstances. Amen. And compassion caused Jesus to stay, not to run or cling to the original plan. Compassion causes us to stay sometimes in the mess for the sake of another. The second word is courage. Courage is not the absence of fear, but it's acting on faith when you are fearful. Courage is acting on faith when you are fearful. When, the, when, when you are afraid, you're choosing to remember God's promises. You're, you're choosing to remember that He can turn scarcity into abundance. You're choosing not to, to panic and reflect on God's promises. And to help these two words, we've got a value at Generations Church called Spirit Over Self where we daily depend on God, where we live, work, and play rather than depend on ourselves. And we will begin to, to put courage and compassion into action when we depend not on ourselves, but more on Jesus. Which means when you, when you feel like complaining about that coworker, or you feel like complaining about your spouse or that kid, 
you will instead choose to do something good. When you are afraid, instead of closing yourself off, you will open yourself up and you will stay in the conversation. Maybe you will stay in proximity rather than run and hide because you have compassion and concern for the other person and you are courageous because the Holy Spirit lives in you. For those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. The power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in you. Therefore, you can have compassion even when it's difficult. Therefore, you can have courage even when it's difficult. And at Generations Church, you have heard us say that we are doing our best to make room for others. And in times of difficulty, it's easy for us to say, well, what about me? Is there still room for me? And for us at Generation Church, it means we will continue to be compassionate to others. We will continue to meet needs. We will continue to be courageous in the midst of difficult times. And we can say, yes, there is room for you, so bring what you have. Because what you have may be little, but it can be turned into abundance. Through Jesus' presence. When faced with that challenge, we need to remember the example that we see in Jesus. We need Jesus to guide us. Because when we are tired, when we're fatigued, when we don't get it right, when we take that misstep and we go, man, I screwed it up again. I didn't act on faith. Jesus doesn't cancel or complain or is cynical about us. He has compassion for us. Jesus has compassion for you. When you are afraid, he says, have courage, for it is I who is with you. His compassion and courage was big enough that he laid down his life for us so we can have compassion and courage today. So no matter who you are or where you come from, when you feel like your circumstances are swirling out of control, when you feel like you... You need a rescue. When you feel like, man, I, I keep screwing up. When you feel like you don't have much, remember that Jesus sees you where you're at. He has compassion for you and invites you to have compassion for others. And does not invite you to be discouraged about your situation, but in fact have courage. Because he is with us. And therefore, we can act on faith because of his example that he has given to us. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are with us. God, you love us. You have not abandoned us. God, sometimes when we are filled with fear, God, and we want to be filled with faith, we, we get discouraged and we feel like we failed you, God, but you love us. You have compassion on us. God, you... You have promised to be present with us, God. You have promised to fulfill the needs for us, God. And we just cling to that hope that you would do that. Help us remember your promises. God, help us to not harden our hearts, but to continue to act on faith. And remember that you will show up, even in ways that Maybe we just, we want you to show up in a certain way, God, and maybe you show up in another. So help us remember that. Help us to remember who you are and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.